From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, we're talking about a checklist that helps medical and health professions educators review their content for bias. Here to discuss her work on this subject is Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown. She's a pediatric oncologist, bioethicist, and medical educator with a background in medical anthropology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Brown. Thank you for having me. Can we begin by establishing what bias means? Yeah, so when uh, broadly bias is just any inclination for or against something, um, and usually we're thinking, or prejudice for or against something, and we're usually thinking about an, an inclination that's not really based on evidence um, and, and not sort of a valid bias, um, but really that it's a very simple construct. And many of these biases are actually probably cognitive shortcuts. So they're, they're ways that our brains actually evolved to process the huge amount of information that's coming in all the time, whether that's information from things we're reading and learning or just information from interacting with other people. Um, so when we're trying to make decisions in healthcare, we often have a lot of different information that we need to synthesize pretty quickly. And we use these biases to try to process it faster than our brains would be able to otherwise. So if I understand you correctly, I mean, some of this is learned. It just is it's in it's part of you. The, the tendency to have these cognitive biases is built into us. What exactly we become biased for or against is learned. Okay. Does that make sense? And when yeah. we're talking about medical education um, or health professions education in general, we're usually talking about four kinds of biases. So biases in who gets selected to be a learner or to be a medical student in the first place, or who gets selected to be a teacher, um, so who gets admitted, who gets hired, bias in what kinds of content we actually present to our students, biases in how we teach, how we mentor, and how we evaluate our learners, um, and then the biases that we as healthcare professionals and learners as new healthcare professionals display when they interact with patients and families, so how they treat those people. So are these biases based on a person's race, ethnicity, gender, age? Are, are we talking about sort of stereotypes? Yeah, so we're, we're talking about all of those different characteristics that people automatically see, whether they realize they're seeing it or not when they interact with someone, and then the assumptions that they make. So it might be the assumption somebody makes when they interact with someone who looks Asian American to them and the patient says, this is a common experience for doctors, and the patient says, wow, you speak English so well, because in that person's brain, they've put together not looking white with not being born in the United States or not speaking English as a first language, even though we know that's not true. Well, I know your focus is on medical and health education, but do biases exist or propose a problem in other fields as well, do you think? Yeah, they really do. Um, and there's a lot of interesting data that, that we draw on and that I've drawn on in my work in medical education that comes from other fields, um, interventions that have been studied and developed and tested by sociologists and social psychologists. Um, and I think we see it a lot in the news now talking about law and criminal justice and how the biases play out in those fields. And they're, they're learned too. They're, they're, they're taught and learned in the process of a police officer going through training or an attorney Attorney, learning, learning to be a district attorney, learning to be a prosecutor. Um, they show up in science, technology, 
technology, engineering, and math. And there's actually a lot of cool interventions looking at gender bias in those fields um, and, and trying to address some of those issues. So how can a teacher recognize his or her own biases? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Uh, one of the first steps is just wanting to do that, is want be, being ready in that stage to look critically at oneself. Um, and I think a big part of that is humility, which is something I try to teach my students really early when they're learning to be doctors, um, being willing to admit your own mistakes, to look back at an interaction. For me, it's whether it's a patient I saw or a lecture that I gave and really ask myself, what went well? What didn't go well? What do I wish I'd done differently? What am I going to do next time? Um, and one thing I've started to do in my own practice before going in a room is, or working with a patient or with a student, is really thinking about what are things about this encounter that might bring out my biases? Um, is there something about how I interact with this person that I find more difficult? Uh, and that's a transition to starting to ask ourselves the really hard questions about what biases do I actually hold about race or gender, uh, about ethnicity, immigration status. Uh, we, we talk about biases towards incarcerated patients now a lot more. So all, all of those things are, are, I think, harder to ask myself than that first question, but that's the place to start. Um, and then there's so much in the literature now, so, so much in newspapers and other media where we can read firsthand accounts from people who have experienced bias themselves. And I think that's a good stepping stone to starting to have meaningful conversations with people who are different from ourselves, whether that's our students or our colleagues or people in our community, um, and to starting to step outside of our comfort zones and really listen to someone else's experience of bias. Now, what about the biases that students may come to a class with? Is it the instructor's job to find those biases and make corrections? Yeah, to some extent, um, and, and certainly the, the class I teach is an ethics and public health health policy class. We're very much talking about the social issues. So for me, I really feel like, yes, that, that is our job to bring those out, to talk about them. Um, and the way I do it in my class, so we, we do a case-based class where we'll give, us, we'll give students a situation. A patient comes to you with this concern or this problem. Um, what are you going to do next? Here, here's where you work, and here's we, we tell them to imagine you're, you're a doctor in a rural area. You're working in a small town. You don't have a lot of other resources. What are you going to do next? And the way we've designed the cases is that you'll inevitably make some assumptions as you go through the case. We do, we do it all the time when we meet new people. We make assumptions about what their background might be or where they might be coming from. Um, but I've set up the cases so that later they get information that starts to challenge those assumptions. And we take a minute to say, okay, what did you, are you surprised by that new information? If you're surprised, what did you assume that makes you surprised now? Or what, what were you thinking about this patient? And, and I hope in doing that, or I think in doing that and practicing that in the classroom, that when we go out and interact with patients, we'll be better prepared to question our own assumptions and to do that kind of reflection. So is the goal to strip a curriculum of all biases or I mean, can you even do that? Or is the goal just to sort of be to acknowledge they exist? Um, a little bit of both, and it, it goes back to thinking about four kinds of bias in education. Um, so when it comes to selection and hiring, 
we, we'd like to strip them all out. We, we'd like to see that our students and our faculty reflect our communities by every democratic measure. I mean, that's that's definitely the goal. When we think about content, it's hard because we, we want to, but it's just not very realistic. And one of the limitations of medicine is that we're always learning new things and updating and replacing old information based on new evidence. So that means that right now, despite our very best efforts, we might be teaching things as biological facts that are actually still pretty deeply rooted in bias. Um, and I think that's, we see that happening in real time. I think of it when I think about how gender was taught 20 or 30 years ago and how we pretty much in medicine accept gender as a spectrum now. And when I talk to my eight-year-old son and his friends, they're like, yeah, why would that ever be not an intuitive thing? Um, th that, that they just can't imagine that a gender binary was so deeply rooted in biology. And we know a lot more now. Um, but those are the kinds of things that I think are really hard to strip out because we don't know what's wrong. We don't know what we don't know until we get that new evidence. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown about bias in teaching. She's a bioethicist and medical educator who has investigated this subject. She's also a pediatric oncologist. Now, in medical education in particular, why is there a danger in reinforcing stereotypes? Yeah, so it changes how our students go on to take care of patients. And I want to briefly talk about what I think is one of the best studies of this. Um, so the lead author was um, a researcher called Hoffman at the University of Virginia. And what they did, they took groups of students and they gave them this list of biological differences between blacks and whites, um, the majority of which were false biological beliefs, because actually what we know now and, um, and are starting to understand much better is that skin color is just a really crude proxy for family ancestry. And there's actually just as much diversity between two black patients or two white patients than between a black patient and a white patient in terms of genetic diversity. Um, so many of these things that pe that people actually say they say are true, like you'll ask them, do you think that black patients feel pain less acutely than white patients? And people actually rate that as true, even though it's totally false. And what they found was between the first and second year of medical school, students didn't become more well informed about this topic. They didn't get more of these true false statements, right? They actually got more of them wrong. Um, and I think part of what's happening is we dump so much information on students in their first years of medical training that we will say things like black patients are at higher risk for hypertension, but we don't give them any context for that. We don't talk about is that due to poverty? Is that due to access to health care? Is it due to toxic stress from expo chronic exposure to racism, which we now know does increase inflammation, rewires the brain, actually changes your the epigenetic part of your code so that some of those changes can be passed on through the generations. Um, but we don't tell them all of that necessarily when we're giving these lectures. And so at the end of the first year, after they've heard all of these associations between race and disease, they actually think that 
race is more important in medicine than it is. Um, and then they took that same group of students and they gave them cases in which uh, the only thing that was changed about the case was the patient's race and asked them how they would treat that patient's pain. And they found that the more false biological beliefs someone held, the more likely they were to undertreat the pain of black patients relative to white patients. And that's just one example. There's many, many, many more studies looking at how patients are treated differently, whether it's looking at the underdiagnosis of heart attacks in women because their presentations are different from the presentations of men. And for a long time, men were sort of the, the gold standard in research and were over-enrolled in trials relative to women. So we didn't have that information. Um, so there's lots of examples of how not correcting those biases leads to people getting poorer care than they would have otherwise. So you're not saying that it's not important to uh, teach about the differences, but it needs to be explained better. And with a lot more humility about what we know and don't know, um, because there's, there's at this point still more things about the human body that we don't understand than that we do understand. Um, and so much that we don't necessarily understand about the interactions between doctors and patients about what makes for good communication and a good encounter. So we need to talk about more of those things too. Have you looked at the instructors themselves in terms of their race or gender? To, is there a difference between the race of the instructor who's good at explaining this and, and, and one that's not as good? Um, no, for that one, I don't think it's about their race so much as the, for some of these things are hard to talk about. Um, and, and we certainly know that in black families are much more likely to talk to their children about race and talk to their children about race and racism early compared to white families who often avoid the topic or tell their children, we don't see color in this family, which of course we, we know is a, a nice thing to say, but not true and ultimately leads to people being uncomfortable talking about it and acknowledging these differences. So I think what really makes an instructor good at it is is practice, is trying to speak about these things, is taking the time to dig into the research. Um, especially sometimes this is off the path of what the instructor usually teaches. Um, so if, if your job mainly is talking about cell signaling and inflammatory proteins um, and how that might cause disease, to, to take a step out and talk about how racism might contribute to inflammation is a little bit different. Um, and it takes a lot, of, a lot of willingness to err and to listen to students when they tell us, you know, that wasn't very sensitively handled. Or when that was said, I really felt that that, that was directly attacking me or attacking people who look like me. Um, I think, that, I, I think that's really tough. And what I encourage faculty is, is to talk, to have an open dialogue with their students um, and be willing to step out on a limb a little bit because we don't get anywhere by avoiding these topics. Now, I know you have a checklist to help educators review their content for bias. Can you tell us about that? Um, I know it's available at tinyurl.com slash upstate bias checklist. How does it work? Yep, so the idea behind the checklist, um, students, especially students of color, often feel that they are disproportionately burdened with bringing these things to light, with talking about, you know, when, when somebody said that in class, it made me really uncomfortable or when, when they mentioned that race-based association for that disease and didn't do any explanation um, and didn't talk about racism or about poverty 
that was really bothersome to me. And what I wanted to do with the checklist was first to take that off of the students um, so that it wasn't their job to evaluate the curriculum in that way. Um, and I was thinking a lot about, we use checklists a lot in medicine um, as, as a way to, it, it's actually a way to address those cognitive biases that I was talking about in the beginning, that if you have a checklist, you won't take as many shortcuts because you're going question by question did I do this? Did I do this step? Did I do this step? Um, so I was taking that idea and applying it to medical education. When you go through the checklist, it will ask about the, these different demographic things we were talking about, like race or sexual orientation or gender, um, and whether that's addressed in the lecture. Um, and it might be directly addressed in the lecture, like if it's a lecture about women's reproductive health, um, it might be indirectly addressed uh, if there's a case study included in the lecture. And of course, once once we present the case of a patient, we're going to be bringing up things like this is a 46 year old woman and so on. Um, so it asks them, is that in your lecture? And then a series of follow up questions about how it's being presented and why. And could anything that's being presented be interpreted as promoting bias, shame, stereotype or stigma? So in the group of questions about race, for instance, it asks whether we're implying biological differences that may not be really there. Because we know from other studies of medical education that that's really common, um, giving giving the race-based association or the epidemiology without talking about the context. Um, and then things like we know that when we talk about disability, we often suggest that patients' quality of life is much poorer than it actually is or, when, or how they rate their own quality of life. When we talk about patients with disabilities or patients who are much older geriatric patients, we forget to talk about normal sexuality or to teach about normal sexuality. So in going through the questions, it prompts us to think about some of those things that we know are common biases uh, and that lead to students not knowing about those topics. Uh, so for instance, one of the things students brought up many, many years ago was that much more of the curriculum was spent on Viagra and drugs for erectile dysfunction than on contraception. Even though at a population level, contraception is a much bigger um, and more impactful topic than drugs for ED. Uh, so that was one thing that by, by using the checklist systematically across the whole curriculum, we can start to see gaps like that. And this upstate bias checklist is available for anyone to look at. It's it's out there for everyone, right? Yep, it's available for everyone. So we are using it across the College of Medicine at Upstate. We're talking to probably about a dozen other schools right now um, who have reached out to tell us that they want to use it, but it's publicly available so anybody can use it. Um, and if there's other for other institutions that want to be able to see the results, then I've worked with them or I'm working with them now to set up their own database so that they can screen their own curricula. All right. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Amy Caruso-Brown. She's a pediatric oncologist, bioethicist, and medical educator at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.